You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for September 2014. Today's episode is titled, Work is a Divine Assignment. To build excellent organizations, management teams must instill in their workers a profound sense of the dignity and value of work. This means that everyone in the organization must view work as a divine assignment. Each person must be in the right place performing his or her work assignment. There must be a culture in the organization that facilitates the process of discovering and aligning each person with their divinely ordained work assignment. The right people in the right place doing the right things for the right reasons will produce excellent value and enable the organization to develop a stellar reputation. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Work is a Divine Assignment. Well, good evening to all of you, and uh, welcome to the webinar. Uh, delighted that you're participating in this. Uh, I have my camera on, so you should, you should be able to see me. Um, not that that's any asset, but uh, some people like that, so I uh, decided to do that. Uh, just, just be uh, aware that uh, during the presentation, uh, I'm trying to get a clean recording, too, that I'm going to mute everyone. Uh, once uh, we get through the presentation, which will take roughly 45 minutes, we will take questions. And uh, if you've, you're not familiar with GoToWebinar, you may not be aware that there is a way that you can electronically raise your hand. So um, right now, I, I notice that some of you have your hand up, so I'm going to just uh, erase that. So if you have a question during the course of the session, I encourage you to write down your question and raise your electronic hand, and we will go through at the end and uh, and re respond to you, and I'll open up the microphone to you, allow you to ask your question, and I'll interact with you at that time. So delighted you're here, and let's begin our time with prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, study and to learn, and we pray that you would uh, speak to us tonight, that we would uh, go deeper and deeper with you into the reality of who you are and how your universe was designed to work. Give us grace to see it at new levels, and give us the courage and the strength and the power to walk it out faithfully for your glory and honor. To that end, we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our topic tonight is Jesus, Jobs, and Money. And uh, it's just a topic I've done before, and I find a lot of interest on the part of many people in this. Uh, probably because anytime you put money in a title, uh, people get excited. Uh, largely, they get excited because they want to learn how to make more money. Uh, and one of the key questions you have to ask yourself in life is, how much is enough? How much money is enough? Well, hopefully at the end of uh, our session tonight, you'll have a better sense of how to answer that from a biblical worldview. Most of us view work as something we have to do, something we must do. In fact, work is like slavery. Uh, we only do it because we have to do it to make money. And money is the supreme measure of success and significance in life for most of us. Well, <clears throat> with enough money, we can retire and we we'll free ourselves from work. So we work as hard as we can so we can stop working as soon as we can so that we can do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and basically so we can be in total control of our lives. So that's how most of us think. I hope you understand that tonight I want to challenge that. And I want to challenge that by giving you a perspective on how Jesus viewed work and how he viewed money. So we're going to look at several texts tonight as we talk about this. And hopefully these texts will persuade you that this common view that I've just recited is not a biblical view at all. Well, to begin with, we've got to understand something about the culture of the day that Jesus lived in. You know, we all live in a cultural context. Jesus lived in a cultural context, and so we need to know something about it. Well, here's the map of Israel at that time, and Israel was ruled by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire uh, conquered Israel in about 60 B.C., so at the time of Christ, when he was an adult, they had been occupying Israel about 100 years. And the reason the Roman Empire you know, was occupying Israel was because Israel had failed to keep, uh, keep its covenant commitment to God. It had a commitment to God to obey the law, 
to be obey God completely, be totally devoted to him, and they did not do it. In fact, they could not do it because human beings can't do that. That's one of the great lessons we see from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3 is there's no way we can do it. So the whole experiment of the law in the Old Testament, and it was an experiment designed to show men what was in man, uh, the whole experiment was to illustrate to us that if God gave us a law to make ourselves righteous and acceptable with God, we couldn't do it. And so hopefully that's one of the things you see and understand from the Old Testament. So Jesus was born into this context where Israel was still suffering the consequences of judgment because of their rejection of God as revealed in the law of God. Now Jesus was an interesting person because he was born out of wedlock, and he was therefore adopted by Joseph. Now, back in those times, which is very different from today, that was really taboo. Uh, people born out of wedlock were viewed as people that were uh, not acceptable. And you, you may recall, if you read the, the Matthean account of the birth of Christ, Jesus pondered whether or not to divorce Mary before they even married, to, in other words, call off the marriage because she was found to be pregnant of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord intervened in a dream to tell him, don't do that. No, this is part of my plan. So Jesus is born in a very, very um, interesting situation, a very, a very low situation in many ways, born in a stable with the animals, born out of wedlock, and then has an adopted father. So all of these things in that period of time were not acceptable. So Jesus had a lot of things going against him right off the bat. But this was the lot that God gave him because he needed this to do what God had called him to do. Now, Jesus was not a Roman citizen. And in the Roman culture, citizens did not work. And the reason for that was the influence of the Greek uh, mindset that had the Romans had conquered the Greeks some two or three centuries before Christ, but the Greek influence from the great philosophers of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle came into the Roman culture and impacted the Roman culture, and one of the ways it impacted it was that Roman citizens did not work. The work was performed by slaves, and slaves were people who were captured are taken captive by the Roman army as they expanded their domain. So Israel here was under Roman occupation, and of course the Israelites did the work as if they were slaves. Now, interesting, as you would expect, Jesus worked. Um, you know, it's, it may be hard for us to imagine that. Why, why would the Savior of the world work? Well, because that's what the context required. That's what the setting required. That's what the Holy Spirit set up for, the, for Jesus to do. So work was a very important part of his calling. Now, we're going to get into that in just a minute, but first we want to take a moment and look at this Greek dualism. This Greek dualism is really uh, it's very, very misleading, and it impacts us even today. And the way it impacts us is we think a lot like the Greeks today, we think work is an inferior activity. It's not important. It has no eternal significance. It isn't really valued by us today. Work is just something we have to do to make a living so that we can retire as soon as we can. So that's how we largely view it. We don't see it as anything really dignified in the mind of God. I remember a number of years ago I was at a conference in California, and I um, – spoke to a man. He told me he had had a conversation with his pastor about work. I said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, I asked my pastor what you know he thought God, what God's view of work was. And the pastor's perspective was he doesn't think God thinks about work very much. Work is not important to God. What's important to God is spiritual things, and work is not a spiritual thing. So that is a very Greek perspective of work. So I want to offer you a more biblical perspective of work. And this comes from Genesis 1, verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. At the end of the creation event, six days of creation, 
God looked out on what he had done and said it's very good. Now, please keep in mind that good is a divine attribute. Good means it lines up with God. So he said, this really lines up with me. Now, keep in mind also that this was stated prior to the fall of man. So in the original state, then everything in creation lined up with God. So that means anything that's done in the physical, tangible world, you're working in something that God values. In fact, in what we call the creation mandate of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which tells us why we are here, it tells us that God created man to rule his creation. We are the supreme of all beings. We have been given something of the, the nature of God in the sense of being in the image of God. It doesn't mean that we are God, but it means that there are attributes of God that we possess. The theologians talk about communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes are attributes of God that cannot be communicated to us, whereas communicable attributes are attributes of God that can be communicated to us. For example, <clears throat> God is eternal. Well, we're not eternal, so that's an incommunicable attribute. Or God is omniscient. We're, I'm not, we're not omniscient, so that is an incommunicable attribute. Or God is omnipresent or omnipotent, those are incommunicable attributes. We don't have those. But God is good. You know, God is righteous. God is holy. God is merciful. God is compassionate. Well, those are attributes of God that we can share in in some level, and we can express those in how we live. So I think that's the sense of being made in the image of God, is we have certain attributes of God that have been placed into us so that we could do the work of ruling God's physical universe, which God values. God considered it very good. So when we think about the physical versus the, the spiritual, or the tangible versus the intangible, we should not think that work in the tangible is inferior or even evil. You see, a lot of the Greek mindset was that work in the physical was actually sin. It was it was dirty. It was, it was just beneath the dignity of man to do it, which you can see that's, that's been expressed not only in the, the culture of Jesus' day, but it's also expressed today. Most people work because they have to work today. They don't see any real redeeming value, no real eternal value, no real purpose in work other than make money, and that's pretty much it. So we've got to, get, we've got to recognize this Greek dualistic thinking is in us and tarnishes our ability to see work correctly. So let's go back. Jesus had the same issue in his culture. Let's go take a look at how Jesus responded to work. And you can see here with a couple of texts that Jesus became a carpenter, the trade of his adopted father. Matthew 13, verse 55 says, Is this not the carpenter's son? This is referring to Jesus. They're amazed at the things he's doing, and they're looking at him and saying, is this person not the carpenter's son? And the answer is yes, this is Joseph's son. Joseph is a carpenter. And then you have Mark 6, 3, which is really a pretty amazing text. Isn't this the carpenter? Now, when you say the carpenter, you're saying, hey, he must have achieved a very high standing as a carpenter. When somebody is said to be the something, the teacher, or the manager, or the leader, or, or the salesman, you know, or you know, or the uh, you know, see the worker, whatever. It, when you put the definite article "the" in front of it, you are saying this person has really excelled. They've really done well. Well, Jesus was known as the carpenter the one that obviously everybody knew about. So it's interesting to see how he took, he approached his work as a carpenter. To become the carpenter, he had to apply himself. He had to work hard. He had to really learn his trade. And he had to develop great skill at delivering his value proposition, building relationships with his customers, really delivering great value. And it couldn't be about the money. No one likes it when people use them to make money. You don't like it, I don't like it. People appreciate and value being served well, 
and they they love a value proposition where you where the person delivering to them you know under promises and over delivers one of the greatest compliments personally i've ever received was from a client in canada a few years ago when he said to me you way under promise and over deliver i thought well thank you that's a that's what i'm trying to do i'm trying to really deliver a lot for give you a lot of value and charge you only what is necessary to do it. I'm not trying to maximize my profit on you. I'm trying to really deliver great value to you. And so that's that's how Jesus must have approached this. Now, one of the ways that we can kind of confirm this is you look at when Jesus called his disciples, particularly Peter, James, and John, who were fishermen. And that, that particular incident is recorded in the book of Luke. And in that incident, what you have is Jesus getting involved in their business and enabling them to gain a windfall profit. Now, the reason he did that, obviously, was to really solidify a relationship that they had. They already knew Jesus. They probably had used Jesus' services as a carpenter because as soon as Jesus then invited them to be fishers of men, it says that they left everything. They left their business, all the assets, everything immediately. They didn't stop and pray about it. They didn't discuss it among themselves. They didn't go home to their wives and talk about it. They left everything immediately. Now, we wouldn't do that. You know, we wouldn't just drop everything and go follow Jesus. We'd have to go think about it a while. We'd have to go ponder this and think about the pros and cons. Now, how is it that those three men wouldn't have to do that? Well, I think the way the reason they wouldn't have to do that is because they had had an experience with Jesus that was so profound in his workplace services to them that they knew he was not only the carpenter, they knew deep down he was the son of God. So that's where the workplace was clearly very powerful in setting the stage for Jesus selecting the men that he had been called to disciple. So hopefully you can see that in Jesus, in Jesus' life, he spent about 18 years, most likely as a carpenter, and which is from about age 12 to about age 30. He spent three years as an itinerant teacher. So the shortest period of his, of his work life was as a teacher. The longest was as a carpenter. And so clearly that was a big part of his life. It set the stage for his work, the latter part of his life, and it prepared the relationships that he would need to do ultimately, arguably, his greatest work. But his greatest work in no way minimizes his work as a carpenter. That work as a carpenter was absolutely essential. I have no doubt, since Jesus learned just like we did, he learned many, many lessons about how to live well in God's universe being a carpenter. You see, work is a, a training vehicle. It's a way that we master and we learn about God's universe. So hopefully you can see Jesus had a very high view of work. He did not have a Greek view of work. He did not have the cultural view of work. He viewed work as a holy calling, and he approached it that way. So the sinless carpenter came to save a sinful people. And so it's important as we begin to ponder this that we keep in mind the reality of the salvation that we have through Christ. Now, this is a text. I don't have time to really go through the text for you in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, but it lays out the reality of our default state. When we come into this existence, we are born dead in trespasses and sins. We are spiritually dead, but physically alive. And so the challenge is, can we get spiritually alive before we physically die? That's the challenge. Just read a little bit of it for you. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. He's talking to the Christians in Ephesus, the Christian church in Ephesus. And that's why he said you he made alive, because they are people who profess Christ. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others, meaning the others who aren't saved. 
So the saved and unsaved alike all start in the same state, a fallen state under divine wrath because of the sin that is we've inherited from Adam and Eve. And then he talks about how God chooses to save us, which I'm going to come back to in just a moment. But first I want to go on to uh, the purpose of salvation. This is a fun little exercise to ask yourself, what's the purpose of salvation? And here are some very common views that I run into. In fact, when I, I was listening to my recording of the last time I taught this, and it was very interesting to listen to how people responded to this question. You know, I can do it live. I can, I can have people then, uh, you know, respond to me, and I get to capture their answers. So I listened to their answers again, and here are some of the things they said. They said salvation is a get-out-of-hell-free card. And here's a, I happened to find a little picture on a, online about Jesus, your get-out-of-hell-free card. I thought that's very interesting. <laughs> People actually put that on on uh, billboards and on signs now. Other people think uh, think of it a little differently, but still very similar. That it's a ticket to heaven. So here's another sign: ask us about free tickets to heaven. Or another answer I got was eternal life insurance. So again, these are very common views when you ask people what's the purpose of salvation. It's all about getting us out of here into eternity. We rarely, rarely think in, beyond that. And then one, one of the common ones that I hear that I find very, very weak is this whole idea. The reason that God saved us was he was lonely. He needed to have someone to have fellowship with. Sadly, there are many, many Bible teachers that are espousing that, and I don't know where they get that. They might try to infer that from Genesis chapter 3 and God's habit with Adam and Eve of walking with them at the end of each day. I, you know, that to me is a very weak inference. Uh, there's nothing else that I can see in Scripture that supports that. So hopefully you're not satisfied with these answers. Hopefully you find these, you know, very, very weak. Uh, you know, I find them very weak. And so I want to offer you a more biblical approach to answering the question, what is the purpose of salvation? So let's go back to that Ephesians text, and we'll pick it up with verse 8 and read verses 8, 9, and 10 and talk about that for just a moment. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is a very powerful text, and I can tell you growing up as a Baptist like I did, you know, 50 years ago, um, I, you know, I'd seen this text a lot. I'd heard this text a lot. At least I'd heard verses 8 and 9. What I hadn't heard explained was verse 10, and I never asked. Verse 10 begins with the, the, the uh, conjunction for, and we'll talk about that in a second. But first, let's get very clear on verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. He's talking to Christians. So their salvation is past tense in the sense that God has dealt with the fact that you are living in a state of rebellion against God, and you're in a state in which God finds you unacceptable. You need to be reconciled to God, and he has done that through the work of Christ. And Christ comes into our, died on the cross, and the, the work of Christ to save us is vicariously imputed to us, and then it is actually imparted to us by the regenerating work of the Spirit. And the way that we know that we are born again, that we've been regenerated, is we express faith in Christ. That's why it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Your expression of faith has come from the internal work of the Spirit in your life, which is based on the work of Christ on the cross. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. Now this word works here is the Greek word ergon, which refers to all kinds of work. They would use it referring to uh, you know, work of helping someone, work in the workplace, work at home, work in the congregation of professing believers, Work in the community. Wherever you use the word work, they would use that word ergon. It's a very general, broad term. So they're saying you didn't do any work 
to earn the gift. The gift is free, so no one can boast. There's no grounds of boasting about your salvation. You're not better than anybody else. I'm not better than anybody else. I did nothing to deserve it. God has freely given to us. So this is the essence of the Christian gospel, salvation by grace through faith alone. Now, why is it that God shows us to save us? Why is it? Verse 10, 4. For we are his workmanship. God has made us. He created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, this is a very, very interesting text because this is a text that largely is ignored when I hear the gospel preached. We, or we reinterpret it to mean something different from what it really says. I put in here the Greek word here for good and for works. That's agathos ergon. And agathos means that which lines up with God. It's the same thing as we saw when God declared in Genesis 1.31 that his creation is very good. It was agathos. And ergon is the work. So we've been created to do works that line up with God, that are consistent with who he is. In fact, that work that we're supposed to do, these works, or you might say work assignment, has been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Wow, that's been prepared in advance. It's not new. So it's something that God has put together. It's something that God has developed. The theologians talk about the plan of God and talk about the meta narrative, which is the great story. Meta's great narrative is story. If you are you speak Spanish, we use the word grand historia. It's the great story. And it's the story of history, beginning at the beginning of time to the, uh, the original creation, culminating in the ultimate new creation. From Genesis, from beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it's the grand historia. Everything in life fits into the great meta narrative. And so we've got to learn to see that we play a role in that meta narrative. We've been saved to play a role in that meta narrative, and that role has to do with work. Interesting, he doesn't talk about going around the world to save people. He doesn't talk about conversions. He talks about work. Now, obviously, in the process of work, you're going to disciple and do work the way Jesus did if you're going to do agathos ergon, because agathos ergon is work like God would work. And Jesus' work was so good that he became the, the carpenter. Furthermore, it was so good that when he called out his disciples, they, without hesitation, dropped everything to go follow him. That's the level that we're called to work. And we all have work assignments in our homes, in our churches, in our workplace, in our communities. We have work assignments that God has ordained that fit into his meta narrative. So this is puts, puts work in a totally different category than most people. Work is not something I have to do. It's something I'm called to do. So let me just summarize real quickly. Salvation by grace through faith alone. That's the first thing you've got to get very clear on. Faith is not a work. It implies you're divinely empowered to believe. Secondly, we are saved from sin and death to a work assignment. We're not just saved from something. We're saved to something. We're saved to a work assignment, and work has value and dignity to God, unlike the influence of Greek dualism. Now, for many of us, that's really hard because this Greek dualism is, is really in us deeper than we want to admit. And it really blocks us from seeing the value of work and therefore blocks us from finding our work assignment. We wind up making decisions about work based on money. You should never make a decision about work based on money. You make it based on calling. Is that what you're called to do? Jesus didn't make his decision to be a carpenter based on money. He made it based on his calling. His calling was to father, follow his adopted father, Joseph. That was a very common calling then. And I would submit to you it's a common calling today. Now, it mean, doesn't mean that every son does exactly what their father does, but it means that frequently sons do what their fathers did. And finally, our assignment in the meta narrative is all about what God is doing big picture, long-term, multi-generationally. God is a multi-generational God. And life did not begin when I was born. It doesn't end when I leave. And the same for you. We are, we're born into a context, and we will leave this context, 
And our job is to bring transformation to the context accordance to the plan and purpose of God and prepare the next generation to play their role in the meta narrative. So it just elevates work to a whole new category if we're going to really see it biblically. So God has a plan and saved you from sin and death to play a role in his plan. That makes your work very important because it's important to God. It should be important to you. All right, well, let's talk about money. Says money seems to get in our way a lot. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 3, verses, verses 14 through 18. And this is Jesus' letter to this church at Laodicea, which at this time, it was probably about 30 years old. This is probably around 90 A.D. John, John penned this letter. Uh, this church at Laodicea was probably established by Epaphras, one of Paul's spiritual sons, and Paul sowed into this church. So John is building on the foundation that Paul laid with this church and Paul's spiritual son Epaphras laid. And so John records this letter that Jesus dictated to him to the church at Laodicea. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are, you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of, your, out of my mouth. Now, you can see he's not very happy with them. And then he goes on, to I think, to give us a real big clue as to why. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. They obviously viewed money as their security. They didn't have any needs because we have money. And if we have a need, we'll take our money and we'll, we'll cover that need some way. We have no needs. We're good. Everything's cool. Hey, we do that today. That's how we think. If we have money, we have security. Now, I want you just to see what Jesus had to say about this. He says, and do you not know? That's a scary thing. He said, you are deceived. You don't know this. That you are wretched, pitiful, or miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So he's saying, here's the reality. You think you're secure because you have money. The reality is that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, that's a really um, a very harsh way to respond to these people, these people that supposedly love the Lord, this church congregation in Laodicea that's been around for 30 years. Well, Jesus is all into truth. Jesus is into reality, and when you view money as security, you are in unreality. This is not what money is about. Money does not make you secure. Money does not make you really wealthy. Money is not the basis from which you think everything is fine. If you have a lot of money, then you got to be really looking your heart carefully to see that you have the correct view of money. Here's another text to consider, and a little quote by Johnny Carson. Let's just look at the text first. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, when you think that money is security, you're serving mammon. And this word cannot, you cannot serve God and money, means you, you don't have the power. Cannot means, does not mean you don't have permission. It means you don't have the power to do it. You cannot serve God and mammon. You're not able to do that. And so these people are very, very deceived people, although they have money. Interestingly, the world recognizes this on some level. Not profoundly, but at least on some level. Here's a quote from Johnny Carson. You can find this on the Internet. The only thing money gives you is the freedom of not worrying about money. And I think on some level, Johnny Carson's got it right. That That's true, you know, on some level. It's not a very profound level. The real profound level is to recognize that money is simply a tool. So let's go on and take a look at that in more depth here. So I want to go to another text. Uh, this is a text that uh, largely scares us. It's a text that, um, that we really don't want to deal with. Uh, this is James chapter 4 verses 1 through 4. 
Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend spend it on your pleasures. Now, that's a very, very difficult text there because um, this, you know, when we are in business, it's very common to view our competition as the enemy and our competition is someone we fight with and we're at war with them and it's kill the competition. So this is the fighting he's talking about. It's all because we're fighting for money and the reason we're fighting for money is so we can spend it on our pleasures. We can do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. See, we think money is ours. In fact, I was uh, teaching a session not, not too long ago, and we were talking about this point, and somebody raised their hand, and they said, well, you know, I love the Lord, and, and I always viewed money as my reward for faithfully serving him, and so I get to do what I want to do with my money. I said, well, that's not what Scripture seems to say, because Scripture says that you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. In other words, when you're praying and asking God to favor you with money, to favor a bid, to give you a bid, to give you a project, to give you an opportunity, to give you a situation, make it give you favor in that situation, you're asking amiss because your agenda is to make money so you can spend it the way you want to spend it. Now, see, that's hard for us. Most of us like to think, well, you know, I, here's my paycheck. I've got this money, so I'll tip God. I'll tie it to God, and then I can spend the rest as I want. One of my favorite questions to ask is, you know, what would you do if God were to drop $100 million in your, in your bank account, no strings attached? I asked this of a congregation here a few years ago. This is about six or 800 people in the congregation on a Sunday morning, and um, Without, I mean, it wasn't a one-second pause, and a woman in the audience yelled out, go to Neiman's. Now, those of you that don't know, don't know what Neiman's is, Neiman's is a high-end women's store. So she was making it really clear where her pleasure is. Her pleasure is in her dress. And so she uh, she walked into this trap, you know, and I, I thanked her for doing that because she illustrated my point. We think about money in terms of what can it do for us. You know, how can we spend it? to meet our desires, to satisfy our desires. So he's saying that, that that is asking amiss. Money is not given to you to spend on your pleasures. That word pleasure there is the word we get hedonism from, hedonistic pleasures, where it's all about the worship of pleasure. Now, he gets, he gets stronger. He gets tougher here on this. Notice what he says, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now that's hard. He's talking to professing Christians. He called them adulterers, adulteresses. Now today that doesn't really carry a negative connotation to us because we're in a culture that largely has embraced adultery. It's just, it's okay. It's not really sin. Well, back in the first century, it was sin. And to call somebody an adulterer or an adulteress was really bad. That was really a bad label to put on them. Well, God, God right here is putting that label on us if we view money as something we spend on our own pleasures. Now, that's a serious charge because most of us, you know, we'd like to take our vacations and, you know, drive the cars we want to drive and live where we want to live and, you know, do things we want to do. In fact, I was in one of my meetings here recently. We were talking about, about this and talking about how money is not to be used for your pleasures one of the guys was very honest said, well, gee, I, I really like the house I live in, and I really like the car I drive, and I like the toys we can buy. I said, I understand we all like that stuff, but we got to get really clear that the only legitimate way to live where you live is because God has directed you there. To drive what you drive is because he's directed you to that, and to take the vacations you take because he's directed you to that, and to buy the toys that you buy is because he's directed you to that. We have got to learn to spend money according to his will and his ways. And if we don't do that, 
we are spiritual adulterers. And the whole Old Testament is, show, shows you what he thinks about spiritual adultery. Just look at what happened to Israel. They were spiritual adulterers because they abandoned obedience to God. So when I am focused on my own pleasure and using my pleasure as a basis for making decisions about money and how to steward money, I'm a spiritual adulterer. He goes on to say that even beyond that, do you not know that friendship with the world, in other words, a spiritual adulterer, is worldly, and he's saying friendship with the world is enmity with God. In other words, we are enemies of God. That means God is opposing us. Now, that's a scary thought. I don't know about you. I'm not interested in God opposing me. That is not going to go well. So I need to figure out how to begin to use money correctly. And one of the first things that you've got to really get clear on is that money is a temporal tool. You won't take, you didn't bring anything in when you came in, and you won't take anything out. It's useful only during this existence. So how should we use money? Well, let me suggest a perspective that I think gives us guidance here to think biblically. You need to view money as simply a tool, like this computer, or like a pen, or like a screwdriver, like a hammer. Money is simply a tool to do the will of God. And so when you begin to get clear on that and start valuing money as God values it, it's not security, it's not significance, it doesn't measure a sense of your well-being, and furthermore, it's not a measure of success. Money is none of those things. Money is a tool to do the will of God. And so when you get clear on that, then you'll have a better sense of how to steward resources. And so when, if God drops $100 million into your bank account, no strings attached, your first question is going to be, Lord, what do you want your servant to do with these resources? That's what your question should be. And I would encourage you not to lean on your own understanding, but to get godly men and women around you to help you discern what God is saying. You know, when God drops resources in your lap, there is a reason. He is executing his plan. He has plenty of resources, but he chooses to give us resources on his timetable and for his purposes. So we have to get very, very clear on how to begin to steward things biblically. And that means we think about what his will is and what his ways, and we begin to invest resources in alignment with him. So one of the great ways to invest resources is invest resources in people and helping them grow up in Christ, helping them prepare for the purpose of God in their life, helping fulfill the destiny that God has called them to. That is a great way now to use resources. So we've got to get very clear. We've got to, get, we've got to be trained to think biblically about money. And maybe some, a little tool that will help you think about money more as a tool is to imagine you have a garage full of hammers. Now, if you had a garage full of hammers, uh, would that excite you? Well, most people wouldn't be all that excited by a garage full of hammers. It wouldn't excite me, personally. But if I had a garage full of money, that would be different. You know, we would look at it differently. Well, we need to look at money just like we look at a hammer. A hammer is a tool that you pick up in certain situations to do something. Money is a tool you pick up in certain situations to do something. And so now you begin to see money biblically. You begin to see money as a resource to execute the plan and purpose of God. Money is a resource to help prepare us for our destiny and purpose in Christ, to play our role in the meta narrative. And money is a tool to help others do the same thing. And it's a tool to execute our role in the meta narrative. So, We've got to get very, very clear on that, and it's very hard for us. I'm stressing this because over and over again, I find this is so hard for people in our culture and our time to get because we default to worldly thinking. We largely worship money but don't want to admit it, and that's the sad reality of the existence that we're in. So Jesus, jobs, and money. To Jesus, the work was a divine assignment. Money 
was simply a tool to facilitate that assignment. That's all it is. And so that begs the question, how should you live in light of this reality that you have been called to work, you've been created to work, and God has saved you to work, a specific work assignment in his meta narrative, and he's given you certain resources to execute and carry out that work. So how should you then live? Well, may I suggest that it is imperative, imperative that you find and fulfill the work assignment given to you by God. You must find that. You must invest your time, your talent, your treasure into finding that. But the question then is, how do you find your work assignment? Does Scripture guide you into finding and fulfilling your, your life purpose? Can you find some guidance there? You know, there are many people that don't think you can. There are many people that in our culture that, do, that think that work really at best is just a tool to evangelize or a place to be ethical, and they think that's a witness for Christ. They do not see the reality of Ephesians 2.10. They don't see they've been saved to do works that God prepared in advance for them to do. They've been created specifically for this time, for such a time as this. God has a call on your life, and that call most likely is to the workplace. For most of us, or probably 95% of us, there are, there are our calls to be equippers. Equippers are called to equip us to do the work of ministry. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. You'll see that. You see, what we, we call people in what we call the ministry, we think they have a holier calling than we do. That's Greek thinking. That is not biblical thinking. And that leads us into a wrong view of work and leads us into a wrong view of money. So we have got to get clear that we all have a call in our lives and equippers are given to us, and I'm right now functioning as an equipper for you to help you discern your call. And Scripture gives us guidance. Scripture provides a tool and a methodology for help us to discover our life purpose. And one of the things that I try to do in my training is try to help people come to grips with these tools and use these tools effectively to discern the will of God for their lives. So the way I do that is through a seminar I teach called Strategic Life Alignment. This is all about now aligning your life with the plan and purpose of God, seeing work properly, finding the right work, viewing money properly, using stewarding money properly so that you are lining up with the will and ways of God, and you're not a spiritual adulterer. You're not an enemy of God. You're working as an ally. You're working as an associate. You're working as a partner with God. And so you've got to learn how to do that. And sadly, in my experience, few congregations have much training on that. And so this seminar is designed to give you some training, a tool to help you line up with the purpose of God for your life. Now, the next seminar is coming up starting in September. It will be each Monday night, September 8th through December 8th. It will be 14 sessions, seven presentations, and seven follow-up sessions. So there will be a lot of discussion in this, a lot of, you know, group conversation, and that's a powerful venue to see things. And you'll see when you take the seminar the importance of community in helping you find your purpose. So those of you that can make this event, then please do. 7, 30, 7 to 8.30 p.m. at Sojourn Church in Carrollton, Texas, here in the Dallas area. Now, those of you that can't make it because you're out of town or in different places, you know, there are videos available. You can go to my website and you can purchase the video. And some of you I know are listening for Wisconsin, and I'm in conversation with some people in Wisconsin about going there to, to do SLA there. I'm also in conversation with people in California to take SLA to Southern California. So we've got various other venues where we may take it to as the Lord opens those doors. So you know, be aware of these, these options. If you can't do it live, then look at the video and feel free to contact me. I'm happy to interact with you and help you work through the process of discovering the purpose of God for your life. Okay, that concludes our, um, our presentation. I want to open it up for questions. Uh, I just invite you to raise your electronic hand, and I will recognize you uh, if you have questions. So anybody have questions? Don't be bashful. Okay, I see Randall Hobson. Hey, Randall. Hi, Dr. Chester. 
you were talking a little bit earlier about the tangible and the physical world and mm -hmm. how important that was. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of earnest Christians that I know that would say that when Adam and Eve fell, that they gave the physical, tangible totally over to Satan, mm -hmm. and that what Jesus did when he came back was with the Great Commission, he showed us that what was really important was the intangible, spiritual, and the eternal. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you say to those people? Well, I would say that you, you find some scripture to really support that. Uh, I can't see any scripture that supports it. There's nothing I found in scripture that says that the creation mandate has been rescinded. So it continues to be in a force and in effect. And then you see the way Jesus lived and how he clearly valued his work as a carpenter. It's been 18 years as a carpenter and became the carpenter. I think that really testifies to the high value of work in the tangible realm and how that opened the door. It prepared him to be able to do what he did the last three years of his life. So that's how I would respond to them, challenging them to, well, show me in Scripture what you're saying. It seems to me what you've done, done is just come up with a theory, you know, to try to, to, to deny the truth of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Okay, anything else, Randall? No, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Let me go into uh, Diane Gurko. Hello, Diane. Hi, Gerald. How are you? Very well. How are you? Good. Um, my question is uh, twofold. Okay. It seems to me that um, this uh, everything you say is, I agree with you, and I'm thinking that it applies in a masculine sense, and then there is woman's work. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering the balance in that, and uh, uh, you know, there's a big struggle about women working in the workplace and how uh -huh. miserable most of them are. And uh, and then uh, for us, you know, having back from the mission field, when we came back, we felt our our work life was kind of over, and it was yeah. very disappointing. And uh, we have about 10 years left, and so we're looking for our new assignment. And um, uh, do you have any idea yeah, I th how we can find out? Well, I th first of all, relative to women's work, uh, I think the greatest workers on this planet are mothers. There's no one that works like mothers work. You, uh, you may have seen the video that's on YouTube about mothers where they actually went out um, and wrote out a job description of being a mom. And then went and, and, and conducted interviews to see if somebody wanted the job. So they, and then they video these interviews. So they start going down the job description that says things like, okay, well, in this job, uh, you never get to rest. You never get to sit down. You have to serve everybody else first. You are served last. And on holidays, you have double duty. You never have any holidays. And you, you're always sleep-deprived. And nobody cares about you. You always have to give to everybody else. Nobody cares about you. So they go down this litany of things and finally conclude with, oh, by the way, uh, you get no compensation. <clears throat> and, you know, one person after another said, well, who would do that? And at the end they said, well, that's the work of moms. That's the job description of moms. And, of course, immediately when they hear it, they immediately realize, oh, yeah, that's true. That's the way moms work. <laughs> So, so that's a good work then. Yes, it's a good work, absolutely. See, we've connected work and money. Work is what you're called to do. God will provide. Many times he will provide money through your work, but there are times that he doesn't. Mothers get get to work for free, and they're <laughs> some of the most committed workers of all. So that that's where I would say that. That one. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah, yeah. And as far as, as where you are, even though you, know, you guys have come back from Japan and have done a great work there, uh, you are here because you have work to do. Okay? And so you, just, you keep seeking the Lord for what it is he wants you to do. And um, he will show it to you. And your work counts. It may not produce money, but that's not the measure of your work. The measure of your work is what has God called you to do. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, very good. Okay, someone else? Anybody else have a question? 
we've got all these people on the call and no electronic hands are up right now. I can't believe that. Still got a few minutes here for another question or two. Okay, Pablo. Buenas noches, Hello? Pablo. Buenas noches, Yes. Jesus Christ once needed to pay taxes. And he sent good old Peter to catch a fish. Yes. Yes. And in the mouth of the fish there was a coin, so he was able to pay taxes. Yes. Can we expect that level of provision today? Can I expect a, a check on the mail in order for me to pay <laughs> my, my week? I think God wants you to be a good steward. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're called, remember, to steward money properly. Money is not to be used for my personal pleasure. Now, that does not mean that God won't direct me to a vacation or he won't direct me to go to a ball game. He may do that. But I don't look at money as a tool to do my will. I look at money for, as a tool to do his will. But, for example, I, I know several brothers that say, well, it's the will of the Lord that I may have a Mercedes-Benz, a brand new, because I am a son of the king, and I can walk in a seven-year-old car, yeah. because the, the son of a king needs a brand new BMW, cherry color. Now, where in scripture does it say that the son of a king needs that? Yes. Yeah, that's just that's prosperity thinking. What you need is what God has called you to drive. Okay. That's what you need. So you know. Thank you, doctor. Yeah, this, this whole prosperity thinking to me is an example of of James four, where we're trying to use our money to spend it on our pleasures. We're trying to rationalize our pleasures. So I encourage you not to do that. Hopefully someday I will bring you to Central America. Oh, I'd love to come there. Yes. Okay. Bless you, Pablo. Have a nice night. Bye. Yeah, bless you. Okay, I think, uh, Fred, you were asking about retirement. So let me find you here so you can talk to us here. Okay, there you are, Fred. What do you want to ask about retirement? Well, is it biblical? Oh, I, th I think there is a sense in which uh, retirement is, is fine if God has directed you to do that. But the way I look at it is retirement is just a, a new work assignment. I don't really view it as retirement. Now, there might be a time where I physically can no longer do anything but lay in a bed. Okay, so you might call that retirement. But as long as I can function I can think and I can use my physical body to serve the Lord. That's what I'm going to do. And I think I need to look for what my assignments might be. It's like Diane asked the question, well, we, we've spent all these years in Japan doing this work that God assigned us to do there, and now we're back here and we don't know what to do. Well, there's a work assignment back here. And so you've got to discern what that is. Or there might be a work assignment someplace else. So you got to discern that, and that's part of the process is seeking God to discern what his will is for that phase of your life. You see, we don't retire to do what we want to do. You never do that. What, what, what happens is you transition. You transition from one assignment to the next in accordance with what God has called you to do. So as you phased out of IBM, or I think you were with IBM, is that correct? Right. Yeah, so you faced out of IBM. You just went into another work assignment. Now, you may not have been very tuned into that or very aware of that, but that's really what happened. So now you need clarity. Well, what is it God's called me to do? This is a new season of life. So what does he wants me to do? Good. Thank you. Okay, good. All right, we have two minutes left. Does anybody have a final question? John Glover. Okay, John. Go ahead, John. Uh, Dr. Chef, can you hear me? I can. Okay. Uh, I'm, it's more of a comment in uh, Revelation uh, where you, you spoke of uh, that God has directed me, you know, basically uh, where to live, what house to have, and, and that, that the tithe and or offerings are not tips to him because I've always heard that do that and the rest is, is yours to do, but, but simply that's, that's a lie according to Scripture that um, 
we drive what he allows us to drive, vacation where God has chosen us to vacation, and that's just very new thinking for me, but I appreciate the revelation. Good. I'm grateful for the revelation. Thank you. Well, I appreciate your honesty because most of us, uh, it is very challenging thinking. I totally agree. All right, well, thank you for participating in the call. Uh, I pray that you are blessed. I did record it, so that will be available to you. Um, and I will try to get it posted as quick as I can and make you aware of the uh, address. Uh, it would be helpful to me uh, if you would send me an email telling me you would like access to that, and I'll be sure that you get that. Well, let me close in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the reality that you do have a plan and purpose for each one of us in the various phases of our life, and it does not matter where we are in life. There's always a reason for our existence, and you are accomplishing things in and through us for your glory and honor. Give us grace to work out of calling. Give us grace to work in alignment with your will and your ways. And, Father, just guard, help us guard us from the deceptions of the world, from Greek dualistic thinking, from prosperity thinking, from thinking that would distract us from alignment with your will and your ways. So, Father, we commit ourselves to you and ask that you empower us to accomplish your purpose for your glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.